Well, earlier this week, I put on Twitter that there was a Lenten miracle. <laughs> Lent is this time uh, leading up towards Good Friday and Easter. And, and so I said there was a Lenten miracle. So what, what was this miracle? And the miracle was maybe not that miraculous to you, but the miracle was just that I finished my sermon early. Um, I've been struggling to finish my sermon uh, before Saturday, uh, most weeks for the last year. Um, but I had to finish this week's sermon early because at the end of the week, I spent the last few days in Philadelphia at a pastor's conference with 40 other pastors. And I can tell you that as the announcements were made, both uh, nationally and at the state level by our governor, um, you could just feel and even see the attention of all the pastors in the room shift to their phones that were vibrating as we were all wrestling with what we were going to do this coming weekend. But before... um, But because I finished the sermon early on a Wednesday, uh, looking at my message now, it feels uh, like life is in a little different place than it was on Wednesday. And it feels that way because it is. Um, As I'm preaching this on Saturday afternoon, and you presumably watching it on Sunday morning, that we're wrestling with different things, where we're wrestling with the same things but in a more intense way. And so I had to decide, what, what do we do? Do I just put aside the whole sermon as it was written or start from scratch? Or do we go the same, you know, do I just preach this sermon that was already written? I guess what I want to do is do this middle-of-the-road kind of approach. I, I want to take what's already been written and just augment it in a few places to where we're at as a society, that is, a society taking precautionary measures to prevent the spread of a virus. There there are all different temperaments at our church, different different backgrounds, different levels of expertise in healthcare. And actually, at our church, we have a number of people who are um, working in the medical community. But we all have, as well as just different temperaments and backgrounds and expertise in medicine, there's different levels of day-to-day health challenges. Some of us are very sick each week, or could be sick each and every week. And so all of us are approaching this differently. Um, If we go back 10 years or so, um, I got the swine flu, as well as my two-year-old son. And at the time we were in seminary, we didn't have a ton of money um, there was all sorts of different information about what that would mean. I felt very sick, and I kind of felt I'll probably be fine. But I remember feeling very fragile as I thought about my two-year-old son and feeling helpless to be helpful to my son. So maybe some of you feel that same way now, and it's scary. Others, perhaps, are less worried. But regardless of where you're at, I'm thankful to the Lord that we have this technology and the ability to record a sermon and share it with you. So what I'm going to do with all that introduction is to continue the sermon series we began a few weeks ago, which is titled, How Long, O Lord? Learning the Language of Lament. As we journey towards Good Friday and Easter, we're preaching through several what are called Psalms of Lament. One-third of the 150 psalms in the Bible can be classified as psalms of lament. 
Now these psalms of lament arise for different reasons in the life of the people of God. And so we've grabbed different psalms across this series, that these laments that arise for different reasons. Now Psalm 38, the one we're going to be preaching through this morning, arises as a lament over our own sin. Now, if I had known where we had been headed as a society, and who could have known that things would have ramped up the way they did, um, I might have chosen a different psalm of lament. But I do think preaching through the psalms of lament, regardless of which one we're in, is a wonderful thing to do. How long, O Lord, is not simply a cry of those in the past, but it's for us in the present. It takes faith to pray the psalms of lament because it takes faith to cast all of our cares upon a God who is big enough and strong enough to hear them and to respond to them. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to be reading now from Psalm 38. If you want to, you can pause the video and read it just There, whether it's just you or whether there are others there, you can pause and read that and then pray yourselves. Uh, But I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and then I'll pray. Psalm 38 begins this way. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before You. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear, and like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth there are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity and I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because 
I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we may not feel exactly what this psalmist felt as this psalm was composed and given to the people of God as a hymn that they can sing, but we can in other ways identify with him surely. The longing for you, Lord, to make haste, to come, to bring healing, to bring salvation. Lord, we pray that you would do these things, both for us as individuals as we wrestle for Um, with whatever struggles we're experiencing, but certainly we pray this over our society, over this world even, that you would make haste and bring salvation. Help us now as we study this passage and relate it to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if there are parts of the Bible that you read with more ease, more joy, more comfort. Perhaps there are certain parts of the Bible where 20 or 30 minutes just just kind of fly by without much difficulty. Maybe, Maybe it's the passionate gospel logic in the book of Romans that captivates you. Or maybe it's the parables of Jesus that arrest your attention. The parables like like that of the Good Samaritan or The story about the father who had two children, the one, the older brother, the law-keeping older brother, and the younger, more prodigal brother. Maybe you just love how simple and yet profound the parables are. Maybe you love the Old Testament narratives. Perhaps stories like the book of Esther. You love reading about the hidden hand of God's good providence that orchestrates events and turns the heart of the king towards, in favor towards his wife and toward the good of God's people, which is a helpful reminder for us right now. When God can feel absent, He's still working behind the scenes, doing extraordinary things. Perhaps some of you feel this way about the Psalms. I, I, I hear you speak of the Psalms this way. When things are wonderful, you read the Psalms. When things are hard, you read the Psalms. When the Lord feels near, you read the Psalms. When the Lord feels distant, you read the Psalms. That's a good thing, I think. I admire those of you who feel this way. I confess to you, though, that the Psalms, for me, feel like, at times, the most difficult parts of the Bible. I've been trying to think about why that is over the last few weeks. Why, why it is that the Psalms, I just feel so much difficulty in reading them. And in, I, it's not that I don't enjoy them, but it's not that I, I don't enjoy them easily. Um, years and years ago, I just got tired of knowing what to read in the Bible next. And so I just said, well, when I, I'm going to start here at the beginning, and when I get to the end, I'll go back to the beginning, and I'll just do that over and over again. So that's what I've been doing for the last 17 years, reading the Bible through um, one time each year for the last 17 years. And, and, and what I've felt as I've done that is that while I've grown in my love and appreciation and familiarity for most of the Bible, yet when I come to the Psalms, 
I, I just, it's not that I don't, again, don't like them. I just don't feel like they come as easy. And I've been trying to think about why. So this analogy has kind of landed on me, this analogy of novels and short stories. So when you read a novel, the, the, the author introduces characters, um, new characters into that novel, and those characters come into the novel, and, and many of them journey through the whole novel. Some come in and they exit, so to speak, for a time, and the plot largely, you know, the, there might be plot twists, but it's the same plot. And so when you begin a new chapter, you're, you're not having to start from scratch. But when you pick up a collection of short stories, each new short story, whether it's eight pages or 20 pages, it's a whole new plot, a whole new set of characters. Now, there are some parts of the Bible that read like that novel, and there are some parts that are more like that anthology of short stories. And so if you read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, now there are characters that come in and they stay for a while and some exit and some come in for a long time and some come in for a short time. But basically it reads like a novel. So when you pick up one morning, um, it's basically the same characters as those who were there the day before. But when you come to the Psalms, to each new chapter, it's like a new author many times, and new characters, a different protagonist and antagonist, new plot, new challenges, new fears, new joys, joys, new hopes. So, if you read your Bible um, about six days a week, and you read about four chapters a day, then that basically gets you through the Bible in a year. That's, I know that because I've done it for 17 years. So right now in my own Bible reading, I just finished the book of Exodus, and it reads like a story, like a novel. But in a few months when I come to the Psalms, it's gonna, each new chapter is going to, it feels like it's this new thing to figure out. And I think I've stu- struggled to read and enjoy the Psalms because my method of Bible reading doesn't cooperate well with the genre of the Psalms. I'll put it like this. You can drive... Uh, in your car to church on the highway in sixth gear. Right? You can do that. You, many of you do jump on a highway, and you, even if you have an automatic, it's in essentially sixth gear. But if you want to back up out of your driveway, um, sixth gear is not so helpful. Right? You need reverse. You need to be looking over your shoulders and the mirrors and, and going slowly, one foot on, you know, tapping the gas and then tapping the brake. And, and it, it just takes time backing up out of your driveway is something you generally do slowly. Sixth gear is not very helpful. And the Psalms, they demand individual attention. They demand time. They demand that we linger and approach them with this contemplative spirit. Now, of course, that's true of all of the Bible, but it's especially true when each chapter is this whole new plot line. So why am I saying all of this? Why this long introduction to the Psalms? I say that because I'm thankful that Pastor Ben, as he crafted this sermon series for us through the Psalms of Lament, I'm thankful for the chance to slow down and to preach a sermon series where not just you, the members of our church, get an opportunity to learn how to lament. I, as your pastor, get this same opportunity. And as we linger over Psalm 38, two main themes bubble to the surface. The first is the sour taste of sin and sickness. 
And the sweetness of God's salvation, the sourness of our sin and sickness and the sweetness of God's salvation. So with our time left, let's look at each of those two themes. We'll start with the sour. That's the theme that dominates the middle portion of this psalm. So let me read just a section of that again. Let me reread verses 3 through 11. The author says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, he says, which is, indicates just a length of time is expiring here. It's not just a quick thing. Time is going by. Verse 7, For my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh, repeating the same line from above. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. He feels fragile. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. He's anxious. Verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before You. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart throbs and my strength fails. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Verse 11 again, finally. My friends and companions stand aloof from what he calls his plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. He feels alone. The author goes on to describe Enemies who are many and mighty, verse 12 and verse 19. Those who see his weakened state as an opportunity to pounce upon him. Now, this author, he's fundamentally someone who follows good and follows God. In verse 19 and 20, we see that in our language, we, we would call him a Christian. This is someone who loves God and, and, and more importantly, is loved by God. That's fundamentally who he is. But in this season, the author knows the sourness of his sin and sickness mingled together. There's no soundness in my flesh, no health in my bones, he says, because of the Lord's indignation, because of his sin, verse 3. And then in verse 5, he says, his wounds fester and stink. His sin, it, it's unpleasant to us, but he likens it to an infected cut that has scabbed over and then it's burst with pus and throbs and pain. And then in verse 11, we read that all his friends and family, they want nothing to do with him. He's alone. Perhaps like some of you, some of you are watching this uh, in a house with other people. Others of you, you got the news that your employer or school is telling you to stay home and you go to a house that's empty and there's just more loneliness and you might not identify with everything that's being said here, but you can resonate with this. Or perhaps you're at a nursing home and they've put in rules where people can't come visit you and you just feel terribly alone. That's how the author of this psalm felt. Perhaps his friends and family were embarrassed by the misery of their friend, this wound that won't heal. Perhaps they're overwhelmed. They want to help. They just don't know how. They're not sure where even to start. Perhaps they're scared. If they get involved, it's going to become their problem too. Perhaps also very relatable. Maybe they're hurt personally by the author's sin. 
And they're just not ready to let their heart jump back in and be helpful. We don't know. But what we know is that he's alone and it's sour. And when I say sour, I don't mean sour like sour candy, like sour green apple Jolly Ranchers or Sour Patch Kids. I mean sour like spoiled milk. Mothers, perhaps uh, you could relate to this. Some July afternoon, you, you go into the minivan or you're getting your kid out and you're, you, you're, you glance under the seat and you find a bottle, a baby bottle filled with milk uh, that was lost in March and it's now July, and you kind of, with reservation, pick it up and, and hold it up, and you look at it, and you think to yourself, I could put on a hazmat suit and, and clean this, or, you know, I could just throw it away. Um, some of you guys who, who live uh, in a house with four bachelors, um, you haven't seen the back of your fridge since you moved in in September. And right now, as I speak and as you listen to this sermon, uh, milk that was bought before Christmas has turned into Greek yogurt. Uh, it's curdled and putrid. It's rancid and, and it stinks to high heaven. Now imagine, imagine you know, finding that in the back of the fridge and all of you think the other person bought it which is why you're all ignoring it but you grab it and you take it out and you shake it up and you take off the lid in your living room and you swing it around and the couch becomes soiled the walls become streaked with globs of moldy milk and it seeps into the pores of the carpet if that's disgusting to you then I'm doing my job well. This is how the author describes sin. Specifically, his own sin. It stinks something sour and fierce to high heaven. Now we don't know the exact interplay between sin and sickness in Psalm 38. One commentator noted that the psalm reads as though he has almost every disease in the book. You know, we might put it like this. It's like someone has gone to WebMD and cutting and pasting all these symptoms together. It's like, whoa, I've got Crohn's, cancer, kidney failure, and seasonal depression. Um, that's almost how this reads. And, but I think it's helpful to point out a few things here. We, we, we need to just slow down for a second and say, the Bible is clear that sin does not always lead to sickness. And to be sick doesn't always mean that a person has sinned. So you have the book of Job. That's, that's many things we learn from the book of Job, but that's one of them, that Job was a righteous man, and yet calamities came upon him like a flood. John chapter 9, verse 3, there's a story where, where it opens up, and the disciples are like, hey, there's a blind guy who sinned, Jesus, him or his parents. Like, that's their two options, this guy or his parents. And Jesus says, well, neither. This was done for the glory of God to be revealed. There's no personal agency in culpability in that sin. So I say again, the Bible is clear that sin does not always lead to sickness. And to be sick doesn't mean that someone has always sinned, at least sinned in a particular way. Of course, we're all sinners, but it doesn't mean that we're suffering sickness because we've done something wrong in particular. But 
The Bible does also teach that sometimes there is a relationship between the two. In John chapter 5, verse 14, there's another story where Jesus heals a man. And when Jesus sees him later, he tells the man, hey, uh, be careful because um, you, know, you, you need to follow and change course here because something worse could happen. And so there seems to be this warning that would indicate that sometimes there is calamity as a result of sin. So occasionally God does send calamity to chasten us, to bring us to the place of humility, to bring us to the place of repentance and trust. And this does seem to be the case of what's going on in Psalm 38, and yet it still has mysterious aspects to it. On the one hand, the poetic nature of the psalm inclines me to not overread each description of these illnesses. These are metaphors, I think, in many ways. He really does seem like he has every illness in the book. But on the other hand, there is a very real relationship between guilt and shame and emotions and spiritual realities and our physical experience. And that interplay of of being anxious and anxiousness manifesting itself in um, physical ailments is a very real thing. And so... That leads me to believe it's hard to pin down exactly what's going on here in Psalm 38. And I suspect it was hard to pin down for the author himself. It was murky and mysterious, which is perhaps how some of you feel right now. There are situations in your life and yet you just you don't know how to make heads or tails of it, which is why we have the Psalms of Lament. You see, we know that for the Christian, God's aim is always, even when He brings and allows hard things to come into our lives, His aim is always redemptive. It's not vindictive. God God's might be disciplining and correcting His children, but He's not punishing His children in, in a way that's vindictive and cruel. God's purpose is to work all things for His glory and our ultimate good. But, That's not always how it feels in the moment. This is why we have the Psalms of Lament. In verse 2, the author says, For your arrows have sunk into me. He feels like God has drawn a bow and shot him with arrows, as though he were an enemy or as though he were game to be hunted. And your hand, he says, has come down on me like you would squash some vermin. Now, in our piety we would be inclined, we would likely be inclined to say, for it seems like your arrows have sunk into me, and it seems like your hand has come down upon me. But the Psalms encourage us not to be so tidy with our language at times. Psalms of lament come from the gut. We shout psalms of lament with vocal cords that have been worn raw from our groaning. What does the author do? In addition to lamenting his sourness, he brings it before the Lord. Verses eight and nine, or nine, excuse me, and eighteen. Verse nine, he says, "O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. You see everything." He says. Which leads him to verse 18. I confess my iniquity and I'm sorry for my sin. So in verse 9 we have the author confesses everything. The good, the bad, the ugly. It's not hidden from you. 
If that's true, then why do we have verse 18? Why confess, why does the author confess his iniquity, confess his sin that the Lord already knows? Well, confession is not so much about knowing that God knows, but about telling God that we know and we're sorry. In humility, we know our sin and we can name it and confess it. And when we, when we, when we know that, that's the place healing can begin. It's really important for us to know our sin. I'll tell you a story here just to illustrate the importance of knowing our sin and the way it can begin our healing. It was just made up. But let's say a couple comes into, a married couple comes into a counselor's office and the first 20 minutes are this seemingly unbroken string or continually broken string of one spouse beginning a paragraph um, telling a story and the other spouse cutting the other person off and saying, no, well, this is what really happened. And that goes on for 20, then 30, then 40 minutes, and then the counselor raises her hand and a ceasefire begins momentarily. I think I begin to see some of what's going on here, she says. She looks to the husband. Sir, in all this, what is it you think that you've done to contribute to the problem? Well, she did this, and she did this, and what did you expect me to do? She nods. She looks to the wife and says, and and you, what, what... What do you think you've done to contribute to the problem? Well, he did this and he did this and what was I supposed to do? The counselor sighs, wipes her cheeks with her sleeve and says, I want to help you, but I can't. You see, Here in this psalm, the author knows the depths of his sin, and he's sorry. And knowing the sourness of his sin enables him to long for the sweetness of God's salvation. Let's talk about that here just for a few minutes at the end. Two requests bound the ends of this psalm. The middle of the psalm is consumed with the present sour reality. But let me reread those two requests at the beginning and the end of the psalm that bookend. Verse 1 and then 22, excuse me, 21 and 22. They hint at the sweetness of God's salvation. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O Lord my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Though the author of this psalm is currently laid low, he still knows a sweetness in God that the proud will never experience. In this way, Psalm 38 is subversive to the ways of the world. We're told to cultivate pride and to rise above our circumstances, to achieve and overcome. Psalm 38 offers us something better. Psalm 38 should be seen as a manifesto against smug autonomy. There's the famous poem Invictus, which has a familiar final stanza. The poem concludes, 
maybe it'll be familiar to some of you, concludes by saying, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll, how charged with punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The poem Invictus portrays one who stands tall before opposition. One self-assured and unbowed before his enemies. I'm the master of my fate, he says. Really? I mean, I mean really? There's, there's nothing that can bring you low? There's no disease, no calamity that could befall you that could not bend your knee? That, that's a lie. Though written by a mighty king, Psalm 38 sounds nothing like the poem Invictus. It is for those who know a better reality. For those who have taped, tasted the depths of their sin and frailty, but yet know God's goodness and the sweetness of His salvation. The sweetness, we might say, from our vantage point of Good Friday and Easter I want to call your attention as we end to something that probably went by without hardly any notice as I read the poem. When I read the poem that is Psalm 38 at the beginning, I read the title, which I want to read to you again. It says, A Psalm of David for the Memorial Offering. Now, most English Bibles... Um, have lots of titles and lots of subheadings throughout. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's actually very helpful. But what I want to tell you is that many thoughtful men and women created those titles, those, most of those titles, that is, um, that are there. They, they came much later. Um, like some cases, thousands of years later. Um, some, some less time than that. Um, they were created when the Bibles were Um, packaged to us the way we have them now. And it's not a bad thing, but we need to know those titles came later. Sort of the way the numbering system did. The verses came later. They're not original. They're helpful, just not original. But the titles, when a psalm has a title, a different kind of title, a title that's in the same font as in the text of the psalm, that title is original. It was written by the author. So in a Hebrew Bible, not every psalm has a title, but um, that is, again, the title's the way I'm describing them here, not just a heading, but, but an actual title. Not every psalm has them, but when they have them, in a Hebrew Bible, the verses are actually staggered differently from our English Bibles because in the Hebrew Bibles, that verse 1 is the title, which is a way of saying this title is part of God's inspired Scripture. Now, why does that matter? The title here before us is a Psalm of David for the memorial offering, it reads. Now, when you go to Leviticus chapter 2, now it's funny, I just this morning I came to Leviticus chapter 2 because I just finished Exodus yesterday. But in my own Bible reading, I read Leviticus chapter 2. And when you go to Leviticus chapter 2, which is the, chap- the book in the Bible that describes so many of the Old Testament offerings, you read about memorial offerings. The very thing David wrote this psalm to be sung and recited for when people were doing it. And the memorial offering, just like we have Memorial Day, it was a time for remembering. So the last Monday in May, which for us is a time to remember those who gave their lives in military service, God's people in the Old Testament had a memorial offering, which was a special time to remember the sourness of sin 
and the sweetness of God's salvation. When you read Leviticus chapter 2, you learn that the memorial offering was made with frankincense and finely ground grains and oil. And, And you would put them in an altar and burn them. Now, I don't know exactly what that smelled like to burn frankincense and oil on an altar and grain, but I suspect it smelled very sweet. I like to think of it like cinnamon rolls brought fresh out of the oven. And that sweet smell is of the memorial offering is in direct contradiction to the smells of verse 5, where the author says, My wounds stink and fester. Behold what this psalm teaches us about our God. About the complexity and beauty of God. God is so holy that our sin stinks like sour milk to Him. But it is also true that in His mercy, He has provided a sacrifice to remember the sweetness of His salvation. The title of this psalm says, For the memorial offering. In other words, for a certain time. It's good for God's people to gather periodically to reflect on the sourness of our sin and the sweetness of God's salvation. But you might object, but but why do we need a special day? Why can't we just feel bad about our sins whenever they happen? Why do we need to set apart special times, a special offering? Why can't we just remember things as they happen? Well, think again of our memorial day. The same question could be asked. Why can't we just feel sobriety and solemnity and gratitude over our freedom that we have by virtue of the sacrifice of others made on our behalf? Why can't we just feel special about that all the time? I think it's because we have a special day of remembering because when all days are special, no days are special. And I think we need days to remember the sweetness of salvation in contradiction to our sin. Because so much of life is spent driving in sixth gear on a highway. And we need times to slow down. In the New Testament, we have the Lord's Supper, which causes us to slow down. Now, as I wrote this sermon on Wednesday, or finished writing it Wednesday this week, uh, I had thought, We'll all take the Lord's Supper together and we might do it a little differently because there's this virus thing happening and maybe we'll just figure things out. But uh, obviously now uh, things have changed quite drastically and so we're not going to participate in communion together. But I, I want to end by just reminding us of what, is the Lord, what the Lord's Supper is about. It is a time to slow down and remember two things. The sourness of our sin and the sweetness of the Lord's salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For what I received from the Lord is what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The author of Psalm 38 pleads with the Lord that the Lord will not forsake him. Verse 21. 
And in remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, absorbing the sins of the world to himself in our place, on our behalf, dying in our place and rising again triumphantly, ascending to the throne of the universe, promising to return. In all of that, we have the Lord saying to us, I never will forsake you. Because Jesus was forsook on our behalf. We have the answer to what the author in Psalm 38 pleads for. So I'm going to pray and, and finish our sermon this morning. I will not be inviting the band back up or the, those to lead us in communion, but I want to pray for you at home and um, ask for the Lord uh, to continue to lift his eyes to him. And um, if you would, just join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that even in the most extreme of circumstances, when we find ourselves surrounded by the stench of our own sin, it is a time because of your mercy, because of your character, because of your goodness, because of your good news gospel, that we can still pray to you and come to you asking for help. And so we ask for your help to lift our eyes to you and that we would taste and see that you are good even in a trying time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.